This week, George Young takes us on a journey through the heyday of cocaine trafficking and working with Pablo Escobar. Rest in peace, George. Let's get ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes. Welcome back. You guys made it. You survived the week. You survived that great episode with Murph and JP. I mean, I can't tell as a guy, so quick story. Uh, I actually was down in 2000. I was in the same embassy, working out of the same embassy JP was. I just didn't know he was there. But I can tell you, when I hear that story and I go to some of the places where Steve and Javier went, you know, and I looked at this stuff, it, it gives you an entirely different context. So, I mean, that, that was an awesome episode, Steve. I mean, it's like, what do you hear the bonus content? I'm, I'm telling you if, you, think, if you think this two and a half hours was good, wait till you hear us go really deep and find out from Javier just exactly how many ex-girlfriends he left behind in <laughs> Colombia. And I'll tell you what, as many interviews as we've done, and we're in the hundreds of interviews over the, the years, uh, we have never gone into that much depth with anybody. I, you know, I'm not even sure how we came up with 12 hours worth of content, but we did. <laughs> oh, we did. And let me tell you, like I tell you, one of the best things is Steve goes, how'd you find out about that? Well, because my list of intelligence contacts is long and distinguished, you know? Hey, and, you know, and let me just throw this out there now uh, to the listeners. We need to hear back from you because we're trying to talk my wife into doing an interview to tell you what it's like to be married to a gym like me, just a real prince, you know, oh, <laughs> and what it's like to be married to a cop, to be living in a foreign country where it's extremely dangerous. I mean, you know, I couldn't even, I have two sons from a prior marriage. I couldn't even bring them down there because of the danger level. But my wife is, uh, she's of the opinion that absolutely no one wants to hear her side of the story. I've even drawn up a, a complete outline for her interview and told her, honey, you pick out what you don't want to talk about. You know, I told her that, you know, we'll tell Morgan to shut the hell up when he gets obnoxious, like you guys will learn that he does. But, you know, that's just we all have our, our crosses to bear here. But let us know if you want to hear from her so I can use that as ammo to go in and say, baby, it's not just me. The world People wants want to, to hear, hear your, your story. story. Look, what's it like, and, and, and in all seriousness, what's it like to be the wife of an agent or even the husband of an agent? Because you had the same thing, too. You had uh, female right. agents and analysts down there with husbands that are traveling. What's it like to be under that? You know, how does it feel to be under that kind of threat? You know, how did you live your life? How did you go about doing the things you did? You know, very similar to what the CIA would go through, very similar to what um, FBI would go through. You know, uh, when I was over in Pakistan, there, there were certain places, you know, same thing. It was not. It, this is post nine eleven. Was not a safe place to be. So it's like I, I think people. Would, Steve, I would want to hear why somebody like her would put up with the likes of you for as long as she did. I mean, you know, I keep telling her I'm the best thing that ever happened to her. <laughs> I, I don't know what the question is here. The I question mean, we've been married. Well, I know for, what the question for... is. The question is just how fucking insane are you really? You know. <laughs> Well, let's hope she doesn't want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, let's not, and let's give a disclaimer, folks, because remember, this is a true crime show. It's true, long-form true crime interviews. I think it's the first of its kind, and we just made the category up, long-form true crime interviews. And more nobody else does it like we, they may do it, but they don't do it like we do. You know why? Because we have style and panache. We are sophisticated. <laughs> We're a couple of farm boys, and you're from where, Krusty Belt? I mean, where was that place in West Virginia? Bluefield. Blue, Blue Crab? Blofeld. You know what? You troopers, you just never learn, do you? (laughs) Blofeld. He's from Blofeld, West Virginia. By the way, Blofeld, I think, was a Bond character. You know what what I tell people? Don't tick me off because I still got some Colombian friends I could call. I'm going to call some of my West Virginia friends and have them come pay you a visit. We'll just see what happens. Don't worry. They'll get lost (laughs) because they can't read the street signs. (laughs) 
that you're going to pay. Yeah, I know. Hey, but hey, guys, we're, we're excited about what's coming up for you on this one, too, because episode two, this is George Young. Again, George passed away May 5th of 2021. Um, we had a really, I think it was an interesting time with him. We, we reached him through him through, I think, one of your contacts, right? Right. Yeah, we, uh, uh, gosh, how did we find out about George? I got to think about it. We're trained investigators. We don't know, but it's in our records uh, somewhere. Yes. Yeah. No, well, I think, I think even, you we had somebody. offer him money. That's okay. I, Steve, while Steve is having a mental brain fart, we f- <laughs> we'll figure it out before the show's over. We'll figure out. But anyway, we got to George. We can get to you. No matter where you are, we'll find you. We'll get to you. We'll interview you. Oh, um, it just hit me. It just hit me. It's through our law enforcement contacts in, in Southern California. Oh, that's the, right. Uh, the Southern same California one that's getting us up with the guy in jail. Yeah, in prison. Yeah, Mel, Mel Sosa, here's a shout out to you, brother. He's the one that hooked us up with George. He's connected, man, like a box of Legos. He's, he knows everybody. <laughs> so about anyway, corny. So, you know, and, and let me tell you the other one of the things I failed to mention in the first, one of the things we do because we're doing interviews is not only do we do a lot of research, um, Steve and I made the decision is that when we ask people to be on, we, we really want to make it a good, as good quality as we can. We can't always control their environment, but we send them headphones. We send them a good quality microphone because we want it to be. So we ship that out to them. It's theirs to keep. So we, we've shipped boxes to the UK. When we start talking to my friends uh, from New Scotland Yard that worked the London train bombings of July 7th, 2005, you know, I have joined Amazon Prime so I could ship them uh, microphones, you know, over there in the UK. So we really, we really want to make this a good experience for you guys. And with George, George was unique. Um, we had a, a friend of his and uh, set it all up for us. Thank her for that help. Got this all set up, got him recording. And it was interesting. I, it was not what I expected. You know, you, you see the book. I read his book. Um, it's psychedelic tuna is in the name. All you got to go is Amazon and put in psychedelic tuna <laughs> and you'll find his book. It was, but, but this dude was, he is just loaded with stories. And I know we only had a couple hours with George it's simply because of his health. You know, uh, it was tough for him to go that long, but what he just, like you said, three stories, three things he told us we were shocked about, you know, and one of them, um, uh, kind of was in the teaser there, but it, he met Carlos later. You know, which was figured big. You you actually dealt with Carlos Slater, which we go into. I hate to keep trolling people. It just it's just self you know self promotion in the bonus content, but it is. We go into the bonus content, your operation, because one of the first things you did in Colombia was handled the uh, uh, safe uh, exfiltration of his family out of Colombia. I did. That was one of my first assignments there, and and uh, I, uh, like you, I don't want to go into too much depth because we do want to tease you into to listening more to what we have to offer here, but. Uh, received a handwritten note from a federal correctional institute here in the United States when I was still based in Columbia that had been examined by the U.S. Marshals and the prison guards before it ever got to me. But a thank you note, which uh, you know was a very nice gesture. And that sounds so strange. I know that you, <laughs> our listeners are probably thinking, you're a federal agent and you're happy you got a note from a federal prisoner. That just doesn't make sense. But that's uh, just something that doesn't happen. Well, it's he one cared about his family. Things. And you got him out of Columbia safely, and they were targets. I mean, Carlos Absolutely. is going to testify against Manuel Noriega, against the uh, the Medellin cartel, and maybe some other folks, right? And so right. he's got a huge. I mean, if you want to talk about a huge target on your forehead, Carlos has got the biggest one in the in the in the frickin' territory. Yep, yep. So, and uh, uh, you know, there might be another surprise down the road involving some of the names we just mentioned. But that's as might far as we're be. Got we're right working now. on it. Again, we go far and wide. We travel the globe. To bring you stories. <laughs> and speaking of stories, we don't have to travel the globe so far. So remember, folks, w- w- your ratings so far, we thank you so much. You know, get on there, give us five stars. 
Um, again, like Jimmy and James said, we don't know why it helps, but it does. Well, we know why it helps because five is better than four and four is better than three. It's that basic math. Duh. And that's, I know you and don't get it in West Virginia, but five is bigger than four, right? So, Hey, can you count these? Yeah, two, which is <laughs> which is two above your IQ. Uh, uh, you people can probably figure out what we're talking about here. But when he says James and Jimmy, we're talking about James, Jimmy, and Sarah from Small Town Murders and yep. Upside Down Digital Network. There so, are... Hey, there are we were the first podcast sponsors. on the network, man. We got to deliver. Woo-hoo. We got to deliver. So we're, we're going to deliver for you guys. And one of the ways we're going to do that, we're going to have this as a regular feature, our small town police blotter. We bring you stories from Blue Crab, West Virginia, or wherever it is, Blofeld, and uh, Chapman, Kansas, where I grew up a little kid. We'll bring you from the smallest departments because guess what? What's important to them may not be important to you, but it is sure as hell funny. So Steve... Hey. You know, I didn't know you were from Chapman, but I've actually met some people out there, and they said the best thing that ever happened to them was when you got the hell out. That's right, man. It <laughs> made room for two more people in town because I had such a big head. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> let's go. Hey, let me bring you this first one. So let's give our intro to Small Town Police Blotter. All right, Steve, this is the case of the stolen hot dog. This comes to us from Clinton County, wherever that is, the town of Carlisle. Steve, did you know at 9.36 a.m. on Monday, the Clinton County Sheriff's Office responded to a complainant along the Kaskaskia River? Oh, however you might say that. It sounds like I'm sounding like Jimmy pronouncing names at the end of the show when they're doing their <laughs> shout-outs. Kaskaskia River in Carlisle, who had reported that someone had broken into a clubhouse over the weekend. The complainant told authorities that the subject or subjects broke into the clubhouse, ate a hot dog, and watched television. The complainant said... This is an ongoing problem, and they will be installing cameras. Oh, I mean, it sounds like a virtual of, crime wave. Uh, <laughs> if that's the place I want to live, if that's the biggest crime they have, if that's if the, dude, I will sit in there and eat hot dogs and watch TV and keep the other people out for you free of charge. You don't need a camera. Just, oh, you know what? One time off off duty job, somebody was expected to break in the Dairy Queen. I got paid by the hour and as much Dairy Queen treats as I wanted. <laughs> no wonder the guy didn't come back. We had all the machines running in there that night. And gained oh, 47 pounds overnight. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, somebody went, somebody said one time, how'd you lose it? Because I lost a bunch of weight, Was you know started working out. And he said, how'd you, so I realized I never ate anything by accident. I never woke up one morning going, what's that ice cream cone doing in my mouth? You know, how did that happen, you know? <laughs> or other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't let the good looks fool you. Okay, Steve, on August 10th, police were dispatched to Peaches Grill, wherever Peaches Grill is at. Because, <laughs> because a bearded, one-shoed man, a bearded, one-shoed man, Refused to leave the front patio. He eventually left in his vehicle, but was pulled over a minute later for a busted taillight. The suspect was given a field sobriety test and taken to the police department, Steve, where he committed the heinous crime of removing a clock from the wall in the interview room. Oh, jeez. <laughs> How do these things get into the papers? <laughs> it's a slow news week, man. But I like the bearded, one-shoed man. It sounds like something out of a you know Hitchcock novel. You know, yes. The One-Eyed Man. That's a new mystery novel coming up. Sarah the, would like that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll actually have to write a short story about that. The Bearded One-Shoed Man. Yeah. All right, Steve, did you know that in Hudson, wherever Hudson is, maybe it's New York, uh, somebody knows where Hudson is, and Sullivan Road, let us know. A resident called the police to report a suspicious package on his front porch at 3.20 p.m. Guess what? The resident said that he observed an unknown person leave the package and called police. So this could be a bomb. This could be something bad, right? The officer said he could clearly see the package 
was labeled with the Amazon.com logo and asked the man if he had ordered anything from the firm recently. The man goes, why, yes, I did. <laughs> the officer told him his order had arrived. The resident said then he felt comfortable opening up the box. Um, you know, some people should have their frickin' – and it's Amazon Prime Day coming up. I think it's already happened by the time this episode comes out, and it's like – to... <laughs> You know what the officer's real response was? Duh. <laughs> <laughs> it has Amazon. Uh, did you order something? Why, yes, I did. Well, then your orders arrived. Well, that settles everything then. Here's your sign. All right. <laughs> and if you follow any of the uh, country comedians, you'll know what that. Oh, uh, my God, yes. That statement refers to. Here's your sign. All right. Here's a couple more. <laughs> Uh, this one, this one, uh, this one. I think this one you may have perpetrated. I think you could have been the victim of this one, Steve. All right, be careful. Robbery. And it, well, of course, it's not you because it says a 51-year-old man, not a 501-year-old man, but a 51-year-old <laughs> Falls man reported to police on Thursday that two teens took his bike after he passed gas while riding past them on the 1300 block of 24th Street. So he farted. While he was riding his bike, the victim said the two teens took his flatulence as a sign of disrespect and attacked him. Well, that must be in another country because everybody farts in this oh country. Oh, my God. He said one of the teens threw a bike he had been riding at him, and the second teen punched him in the face and took his bicycle. The estimated loss, felonious farting. I didn't know that that was a crime. <laughs> Third-degree farting, Your Honor, that's a felony in this state. Oh, you know, guys, you got to understand, we're not making this crap up. <laughs> oh, I mean, if you see some of the ones we have here, oh, here, okay, last one, but the, the, when you're in a small town like Crab Legs, West Virginia, wherever you're at, I mean, it's just like at 8.29 p.m., police received a call from a Dubois. So this is like, this is, this is French. So it, if you were in, if you were in Iowa, it would be called Dubois, but it is uh, a police received a call from a Dubois woman who said she smelled something funny in her room last night. She believed it might be her husband. Well, well he just lost he... his bike. Yeah, he just lost his bike, and he smells funny. And he's dead. He's been in your room for a week and a half. Of course he smells. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh. God Folks, bless we're not making. People. I swear to God, we're not making this up. You know, we're just... And in fact, if you have stuff, oh. if you have stuff, we're going to give you a special email to send us stuff to. Yeah. This will be in the next episode. We'll give it to you. We have to set it up. But you guys can send us stuff. If you have funny articles you want to read, if we read them on the air, we'll give you guys full credit uh, so people can make fun of you and taunt you instead of me and Steve. All right? And who, and who knows? Someday we might even bring Jimmy on here so he can butcher your names instead of us. That would be a crude crossover. Nobody's ever done a crossover podcast episode. Uh, so hey. we shall have to do that. We'll bring Jimmy on to butcher your names, and we'll do it for free. Upside Down Digital Podcasting Company, that's... Uh, that's Upside uh, Down Digital Network, old man. Well, same thing, you know. No, it's not. But first-timers. First-timers, Don't, argue, that's don't right. argue with me. I'll cut don't you argue off. Don't argue with me. I'll slap the shit out of you. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get into this. So we've already... We've, we teed this up. So, Steve, i got to ask you a big question. Are you ready to play the Game of Crimes? This one, absolutely. This is a special episode with, with uh, George Young. Let's go. Let's get into this. Let us take you back to 1970. I mean, we've we've read all the stories we've seen. We know how you got started in the game, you know, uh, moving out to Manhattan Beach. But it, is was Durango, was Mexico, was that your first actual arrest for trafficking? Yes. 
what what how did that come about happening? I mean, because uh, you know things were going so good, you started doing these loads. But so tell us, walk us through. How did you set up the operation to begin with? So what led to what were the events that led to you flying in Durango with that load? Well, it was the rainy season, and uh, couldn't land down down south, you know, in a, a muddy field and all that, and so I conceived the idea let's go north and land up in the mountains somewhere and i we were driving by in durango and there was a an airstrip there cement cement airstrip and it was almost as if it was made for me (laughs) And, and you know it was abandoned really and what happened is we decided to use that, and my guy who was sitting there with the fuel, okay, to refuel the plane, he got arrested. They came by and saw it was suspicious, and you know after they beat him up a couple of times, he told them what the hell was happening, and they used him to, you know. Communicate with me via radio and tell me it was okay to land. And so that was over the, the that was uh, you were communicating with him on the ground from the radio in your plane. And how what was the range on that? And how close did you have to be before you could communicate with him? I don't know, probably two hundred and fifty miles. We had a good base station. Was this on a HF radio? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And that was a crazy scene in itself, like in another movie. And we landed, and uh, then they took me to the chief's office and uh, in Durango, and, you know, they started to beat me up, and I said, uh, forget that. I have money. Said, no, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I said, I had a friend of mine who was a bondsman in L.A., Jaime Valdez, and he spoke Spanish perfect and everything, and uh, I called him. I don't remember what was happening, and he said, give me the phone. And he, the chief spoke on the phone with him, and after they made the arrangements, talking, and the, the money he would bring the money and everything it was like the chief said okay now we're amigos we will go out to the zona tonight and get some putas <laughs> <laughs> i said what <laughs> hey well let's let's go back just a little bit tell us about the load so where did you put this load together at who was it intended for and how big was it and then i also want to talk about your plane because like we were talking about i was reading in your other book on the psychedelic tuna a lot of your early chapters talked about the Cherokee uh, Six, the plane, and you obviously taught yourself to fly. So tell us about that load for this particular flight that you ended up getting arrested on. Where did it start from? How did it originate? Where was it going? It was coming out of Puerto Vallarta, and which for those who don't know, it's a tourist resort, mm-hmm. and it had. It still does. It's called Point of Mia. This like tabletop 
plateau jetting out into sea, perfect for a landing. So in those days, just park the plane at the airport in Puerto Vallarta and take off and land over in Punta Mia and load it with pot because you could only way you could get there was by boat mm-hmm. uh, or plane and then I would take off from there. And you know, it was pretty secure and we'd load the pot there and everything. What was your communications um, operation in terms of when you were communicating with the people you were delivering it to? Was it all done over the phone? Was it over pay phones? How did you guys communicate in a way that you thought was secure enough to arrange this? That was basically, I would, you know, speak on a pay phone, but nothing about business. And then I would go down there commercial and, and communicate in person. Hmm. Did you have code words uh, even over the phone? Did you guys would you would you use certain code words to know that hey I'm coming down to talk business? No, to be honest with you, nobody really knew what the hell was going on. You guys didn't know what's going on, <laughs> That's I, right. and nobody knew. I mean, I think it when you guys finally found out, McManus told me he said it was overwhelming to them. It was. Uh, and an old man named George up in uh, Northern California, he showed me how to fly. And then he he went down the uh, south from Northern California. And he said, I said, where are we going? He said, I'm going to show you something else. And we went across the border in broad daylight, Mexicali like a thousand feet off the ground, like three or four times. And I said, holy shit. <laughs> and he said, you know, boy, and I said, what? He said, I just gave you the keys to the Sultan's jewel box. Wow. Wow. So there was no, there was no response of American fighters or Mexican fighters coming after you at that time, huh? No, the Mexicans didn't know shit from China, all of it. And you know, the only way we'd scramble planes in those days is on the radar is if it was a high high speed aircraft mm-hmm. moving into the country unannounced. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there were thousands of small planes up on the on the screen every day, mm-hmm. and it was like you were just another plane coming from somewhere. Wow, how many? Trips and loads had you run before your arrest in Durango? How many successful? Uh, what was your batting average before Durango? How many? How many times did you run? Probably twenty-five times. <laughs> and that was was that via aircraft or was that by, via the uh, motorhomes that you used? Well, we used to come across the border in Mexicali and go out to the dry lake beds by Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Right next to the marine base. Okay, there's a marine base out there in the desert. Yep. And, and there were like dried lake beds, and they were perfect for landing in, in a, an airplane. It went for miles. So we'd unload there uh, and put it in motorhomes 
and then take it north to the colleges. Do you ever get stopped? Uh, uh, ever have a state police or a police officer stop you in that motor home while you had a load on there or any of your guys? <laughs> one time, one time only, we were up in uh, going to University of Massachusetts. The motor home was loaded with pot and got pulled over some infraction and uh, talked to the cop and uh, the guy was with me. He got, he looked like a professor and he said, I'm moving up here. I'm going to be teaching at the university. And he said, that's good. He said, I'd, uh, make sure you get that taillight fixed. And, uh, and, and he said, what the hell's that smell? <laughs> <laughs> mm. and I, I mean, you, you had to be getting a contact high just from all the weed in the back, right? <laughs> I didn't, didn't even need a contact high then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm curious, George, what prompted you to get started in the business to start with? You know, wh why did you slip, pick the marijuana business? Okay, I was uh, <laughs> going to uh, complete school at the University of Cal uh, San Diego. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, because college out in California for a resident uh, was damn near free. Wow. And I mean, it used to cost, I lost my scholarship football and it was really hard to get money. My old man wasn't giving me any money. <laughs> you know, he he was a depression era guy, like asking for a dime, he'd give you a nickel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, the only solution I came up with was you know, I found out in California, a state resident, you can go damn near free. And so I was Intent on, I was majoring in marketing, ironically enough, and <laughs> I wanted to work at Wall Street. You know, I'd be, be another <laughs> shock. Yeah. So you, you wanted to wear the three-piece suit and go have those two martini lunches and do the fancy uh, ad and marketing campaigns? That was my dream. Well, what what happened to enter, was it? And kind of playing off of Steve's point, once you started getting into it, was it because you mentioned this several times in your writings? And by the way, the book, I, you know, people are listening. The one I'm telling you, I'll finish this. It's called High on Tuna, A Taste of Inherent Vice of the Psychedelic 60s in Devotion to the Symphony of Happening. So, uh, I mean, I've been reading that. I was telling Steve, it's like there's a lot of good stuff in there. But you you use the word greed a lot. Did greed was that starting to be, once you started seeing the money, did that become a big factor? It became a big factor with everybody that got in it. I mean, I watched people, uh, good guys, man, change overnight. The money changes people. I mean, you know, it's almost like a sickness. The title of that book makes it sound like you were an old hippie, George. I, I was a, a hippie who wanted to work on Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be the new wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Well, you would have had to cut your hair, and I don't know if you were going to go for that, were you? <laughs> well, it was, it was short then. Yeah. 
Hey, let, let's but so let's go back now to Durango. You one of the things you also talk about too is the interrogation. And Steve and I have both conducted interviews and interrogations of people, you know, but I can tell you I, I've never in my life ever used a cattle broad on somebody's testicles to to do what was that experience like? What what did you think it was going to be like? And then what did it end up being like? <laughs> Indescribable. <laughs> you ever been kicked in the nuts inside multiplied a thousand times over? I got to say, that's got to suck. <laughs> so, so how long did they keep up this interrogation on you, you know, using the cattle? And what besides the cattle prod, what else did they do to you before they realized, hey, we want to be friends with you because the gringos got money? Well, they like beating you with phone books. <laughs> wow. And I mean, you were tied to a chair and... Uh, Right, going anywhere, mm. and you know, I mean, a, a lot of guys they damn near beat to death. I believe I mean, that. Yeah, I mean, there was no mercy there. Did you know it was going to be that bad, or was it worse than what you expected if you ever got caught by the uh, federales or the Mexican police? I had really no concept of that, you know, and like. And of course, then I thought, well, I'm never going to get caught. <laughs> That's what they all say, right? Right. Well, look, so, but you, you know, we're talking about the game, right? So part of the way the game was played down in Mexico was if you had money, you could bribe your way out of stuff. How did you end up getting yourself going from getting kicked in the nuts and being uh, cattle prodded and beat with a phone book to being their good friends? And uh, spending time, you know, in the, uh, uh, you know, the celebrity wing of the new prison they made down there. <laughs> well, I simply told them I had money. And, of course, they had the airplane. You know, and I'm Mexican at that time. I don't want the whole goddamn race of Mexicans coming down on me. <laughs> you know, an airplane was like a rocket ship for them. You know, I used to say that when a plane went by, they never looked up because God had forsaken all of them. Wow. Jeez. What was a what was a, a pound of marijuana going for back in 1970 when you delivered it? Uh, 300 pounds. And that was only back in the East Coast. What was your what yeah. was your cut out of that? What how did the percentages break out between uh you know the manufacturing of it, the trafficking of it, and the distribution of it? What how did percentages work out with marijuana back in the day? Well, I had a a partner, and uh, so we were we were splitting like and another partner too, and it was thirty, 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 thirty-three and a third, thirty, you know, one third. But that was a lot of money mm -hmm. in those days. People don't realize. I mean, $1,000 was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You know, like you paid in a, a restaurant with a $100 bill. They checked it. Today, a $100 bill is like a nickel, these kids. <laughs> it's nothing. Wow. So 
And the $300, that was the uh, retail price in the North East, right? What was your wholesale price? $10 a kilo. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Talk, you learned your first lesson in marketing. Mark the, hell, mark the hell out of it. You know, mark it up. It was incredible to me. Oh, talk about a return on investment, a $10. <laughs> Holy cow. How, was 300 So how did you arrive at 300 Was that was that the people on the ground who were selling it? Or do you think you could have gone higher? Or was that, do you think, about the limit for the market right about then? It was the limit on the plane. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's, that's a, the, the most, you know, we could get in the damn plane. You bulk up before you weigh out. Mm-hmm. You know, and like so, so you get yourself eventually out of prison down there. And for a lot of the folks that are hearing you and listening to you, George, I mean, there's a lot of information and in blow that goes into a lot of detail. So, but, but eventually, how did you get out? How much money did it cost you? What did it take? And I guess there was an issue too with the prosecutor. A federal prosecutor almost screwed up the whole deal for you, right? He came from Mexico City. You know, wanted to make a name for himself, and it really pissed the police chief off in Durango. And he said, "Well, fuck, this guy is coming; he's going to take the case away, and this and that." And we were the prosecutor insisted on taking us all out to have us stand beside the plane and take photographs and all that. And we were—I was driving there with the chief. You know, of course, in handcuffs or whatever. And he looked at me, he said, I have an idea. And I said, what is it? He said, I will pull over make believe I'm going to take a leak. And he said, then I will kill the son of a bitch. <laughs> and I said, no, we're not going to do that. No, no, no. I said, that's not a good idea, man. Was he kidding or do you think he was really serious? He was serious. He wanted to work with me. He said he could get better pot, you know, and that's what it was all about. It's all about corruption. Yeah, mm. still is, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you're, de- you're dead on. Hey, so you eventually get yourself out um, after three months. So let's work our way up. So between 1970 and 1972, we're going to work up to your arrest in Chicago. What were you doing during that time? Were you continuing to bring on additional partners or planes? Or how was your business expanding before Chicago? It was, I kept it at like, you know, 300 every every month. That was a lot of work. Driving, flying across and driving back east from motorhome. Mm-hmm. Put all those hippie girls on board. <laughs> that had nothing to do with it, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> and I was dealing with my boyhood friends who went to universities. And I, all I did was front it to them. And they'd come back with the money. And it was like a dream come true. Hey, on the on the uh, RVs that you guys were using, where did you learn to create the concealment methods? I mean, was that something you just came up with? Did you learn that, you know, from somebody else? Did you do some research, or how did you go about realizing that? Hey, to make this work, we had to conceal it, and this is the way we were going to do it. No, I ran into a guy at the beach one day, and 
I said, where are you from? And he said, Winthrop, Massachusetts. <laughs> and, and he said, what are you doing out here? I said, just going to school, playing around. He said, I'm in the pile drivers local out here. He said, and I can get you in the union and da 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 and, I, and he was a maniac, all right? One of those guys who could steal a car in five seconds, build anything, do anything mechanical, carpentry, or like, you know, and like, so I brought him on board. And he conceived the idea of the hiding places and rebuilding, you know, cabinets and all that. Cool. What was the most you could put into an RV um, without it becoming obvious? How, how much weight were you carrying on a, you know, average trip? Like we, we carried 300 pounds. And, you know, he conceived the idea of putting the chassis on, on hydraulics so you could lift it up. And, and then put the pot there and let it, and then bring it back down. Wow. And it's like, you know, amazing. It is. Hydraulics is, uh, it, it's an amazing concept just in itself, but the fact that you can use it to create hidden compartments like that, uh, which is, a lot of that is done today as well. But it sounds like you guys were pioneers back then. You know, I go to these uh, marijuana conventions and speak a lot. Mm-hmm. And these guys come up to me and tell me, you taught me how to do the whole thing. You know, what roads to take, what, what, how to hide it, and this and that. I said, Jesus Christ, I said, we didn't make the movie for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the way, everybody, the, this is not How to Smuggle 101. <laughs> <laughs> But hey, but let's so uh, between that, how many, how much, how active were you before uh, Chicago? I mean, because we'll get we're getting into Chicago now. Uh, you got uh, nabbed by the original name of the DEA, which was the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs (BNDD) with 660 pounds. So lead us up now to Chicago. What made you go to Chicago? Why were you there? And with the big operation like this. It seems like you were taking a lot of risks being the guy that was like the point or out there, you know, doing a lot of this stuff. Well, I found another guy who was a great pilot, okay? Cliff got us right. Cliff's gone now. Answer, but so I can use his name. And uh, he's a good looking guy, you know, playboy, lived in Beverly Hills. Great fucking pilot. Great pilot. I mean, he was fond to fly. He could fly anything. And so I moved in with him, and, uh, you know, he had a, he was from Chicago, and he had a buddy whose father was the biggest scrap metal dealer in Chicago, and uh, listener scrap iron or whatever. And, and he, he introduced me to the son, okay, and the son, Wanted to deal pot. And I said, okay. He said, bring me all you want. I got cash. And I said, I believe it. And uh, I was sitting at the Playboy Club in Chicago talking to this beautiful Scandinavian blonde. And like, I know. I like, <laughs> and waiting for my money. And I get a tap on the shoulder. And 
for some reason, when you get certain taps, you just you don't want to look around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there might be her husband or her boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, and the guy said, "Come on, we'll lobby you for a minute, George." And I said, "Okay." And I, he said, "He said your friend David." He said. We're not even after marijuana, he said, but you're at the top of the list, he said, so you're going to go. And uh, and he said he was dealing something worse than marijuana, George, heroin. And uh, he said, I'm going to take you to a really bad place. He said, you want to call a lawyer or whatever right now so you can get out soon? Cook County Jail in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was a bullshitting me. <laughs> mm. Mm. And so in those days, they didn't have the mandatory sentencing. So I was looking at four years and doing one third, which is really nothing. And, you know, they sent me to Danbury. But, and, but you skipped out on bail, though. I mean, it, it, like you said, you could have got one third, but you made bail and then you took off, right? Right. I, uh, <clears throat> my girlfriend, Linda, I told her, well, I'm going to be, I'll be back in a year and a half. And she said, I won't be here. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I've got an inoperable brain tumor and I'm going to die. And I went crazy. And I told the lawyer in the elevator, and he said, Get the hell out of here," he said. "I'll," he said. "I'll stall them." He said, "Go on, George, get out of here." So I went, and uh, tried to. You know, I took her everywhere, all over the world, doctors everywhere. It was and man, it was no good. And uh, I went to say we were leaving the country for good, and uh, I went to say goodbye to my father. And that was late at night, and all of a sudden the storm doors came crashing down, and I knew who it was. And like, and who do you think made the call? My mother. Mm, so that's and true. She couldn't take it anymore, mm -hmm. and this agent out of Boston, he was. FBI, and he was assigned to catch me. Okay, and like I used to call him up and say, "I'm down at the Red Coach Grill having a beer." I said, "Ben, aren't you going down?" He said, "You little son of a bitch!" He said, "You're making me crazy." <laughs> That's nothing like poking the bear in the cage, you know, George. Hey, well, look, you came back, um, you were in custody for 18 months before going to Danbury. So where, where were you in custody at during that time before going to Danbury, uh, what they called FCI, you know, Federal Correctional Institution? At the, at Boston Charles Street Jail. And they wanted to, you know, to bring me back to Chicago. And so... Because the lawyer said, I'll fight it and da 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 and keep you here as long as possible. But I eventually ended up going back there. 
had. You know, I had to wait in the Cook County Jail again. Good. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And they had a a rec room there. And I mean, it was all black. I was the only white kid in there. And so I figured it out. I said, this is it. I said, you got to. I could go crazy, George. So I started slinging chairs around, telling them, come and get me, you bastards, man. Like, let's get it over with. Da, 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 da. Uh-huh. Praying, praying they wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and suddenly this big old Indian guy came up to me. And he, he said, take it easy, Tolo. He said, he said, you stood up to these guys. He said, it's all right. It's going to be all right from now on. I said, Jesus Christ, thank you. <laughs> well, as bad as you wanted to get out of Cook County, you kind of screwed up at sentencing, right? Because the story goes is that the judge asked you, and the lawyer's trying to keep you from smarting off, but you still had one smart-ass comment left in you in front of the judge, right? I always had one. <laughs> And, you know, I went to the scenario about what's the crime about taking a plant across an imaginary line? Actually, the judge laughed. You know, like, he said, unfortunately, it's not an imaginary line. The plants are illegal, he said. So let's get on with it. Now, was it true that you got your sentence up because of that, or did it stay the same? He went up a year. Okay. Mm. And so then going to Danbury, which is in Connecticut, and it was mostly uh, mob guys there. You know, they come down from Penn. Mm-hmm. They're trying to humanize them again before they let them out. And so. And I was in there with Gordon Liddy of Watergate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and it was crazy. And, and, but it was a good time. I was having a good time. I taught school there. and But lo and behold, I was going to quit any, the marijuana and go back to school, all right? That was it. And yes, so they put me in a cell with. Does it begin with C? <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's ironic. Thing. Like, well, what are the odds on that? Well, let me ask you a question about that, George, because you were talking about Carlos later, and that ended up becoming your business partner um, and your intro into Pablo. Had it not been for that introduction, do you think you would have got back in the business anyway, one way or the other? No. no. Why not? I I'd had it, you know, and had my day in the sun. And I figured my, you know, my interests were finishing school and working at Wall Street. And how many years did you have in the smuggling business when you arrived at Danbury in 74? Uh, probably six, five or six. Mm-hmm. Had you saved up any money by then? Yeah, I, I had money. And, you know, I... 
I was gonna, I bought a before I got out, I bought a fishing boat. I went for parole hearing, and there was a white guy and a black guy sitting there. And I gave him the spiel, what am I gonna do? Da, 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 da. And they sat there quietly. White guy asked all the questions. He said, Well, you got parole. And black guy didn't say anything in that. Then I got to the door to leave. He said, George, wait a minute. He looked at me and he said, "Keep that boat out of Mexican waters." <laughs> <laughs> did did he know, or was he just lucky at guessing, or did you telegraph that in some way? Is that I wink, wink? I know it's a sham. You know it's a sham. I'm getting back into the business. I think he knew. Yeah. He was pretty streetwise. <laughs> you know, the other guy was, you know. He chased bad guys, but he, I don't think he ever talked to them. <laughs> so now you're cellmates with Carlos Later at Danbury FCI. And there's there's got to be a little bit of a honeymoon period, I would assume, where you get to know each other and, and you start to develop a trust. Uh, how long did that take before Carlos was ready to bring you into his confidence and, and educate you about cocaine? It didn't take long, ironically. and. <clears throat> he, after I was there about four or five days, he asked me what I was there for. I, I told him marijuana and airplanes and this and that. And, and he looked at me, he smiled, and he was quite, believe it or not, real, like a perfect gentleman mm-hmm. and really likable personality. And I, and it was easy to like him, and it was none of the other side, and so I liked him a lot. And, and he said, "Do you know what a kilo of cocaine costs down in Colombia?" I didn't know what the hell cocaine was really. I mean, except in the movies or whatever. And like, and I said, "How much?" And he said. 5,000 a kilo. And I said, how much does it cost in the United States? He said, 60,000. Wow. You know, and like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, the lights went on, man. Like, And I said, I think we're going to talk some more about this cause. And that's how it started. And what... Did Carlos have anything to do with aircraft back then? No, he was... Uh, and they were stealing cars and transporting to Columbia. Wow. He had a little dealership down there called Later Auto mm-hmm. in Medellin mm-hmm. with his brother. And it, they paid the, the, the federalities off of, you know, to stamp the tax and import duties and you know, they they made like hundred percent profit. Yeah. What made you believe this guy? I mean, here's a guy in for stealing cars, and you've been smuggling, you know, tons of uh, you know, dope by that point. What made you believe that he really was the real deal? That I mean, anybody could said cocaine, but was there something about him that said, "Yeah, this guy's legit"? It's just some things you know, some you don't. 
Unfortunately, I I don't know more than I know. <laughs> hey, so when you heard about cocaine, even though you'd heard, you know, you'd only heard about it in the movies, had you ever tried it before that? Never. In fact, I didn't even smoke cigarettes. And, uh, I mean, to inhale it, the marijuana was really difficult for me. So, of course, the beach girls in California made a water pipe for me. <laughs> Very accommodating. Yeah. How long were you and Carlos together at Danbury? Because um, you had your, he got out first, right? Before you? No, he I did. did. He, he, we got out basically at the same time, but he was held by immigration. Uh. For like another three months or whatever. And I had a number to call. And we had a code for the number. The weather's great. Come on down. <laughs> Real James Bond stuff, right? Yeah. Hey, it works. Yeah. And uh, I basically, I bought the fishing boat and for the probation officer. and. It was all working out. My mother really believed I was done with the crime and going to be a fisherman. <laughs> so, and probation officer was a young girl. Uh, I, and she never really harassed me or bothered me at all, ever. And she, she liked my mother, as a matter of fact, and like, they have coffee together in a snat, and I'd be out at sea catching fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, how long did that last? Until I got that phone call, which was like five months later. And that was it. I was gone. How did you get out of the country knowing that at some point your PO, you know, your parole officer might come by and check? You know, I mean, you were you were obviously starting to take another chance, right? You could have been out of the country uh, when somebody popped in, right? Well, we found a land of computers. Getting a false identification was really simple. You simply looked under the births and deaths. In the library and newspapers, think somebody that was your age died, and you went to the town hall and asked for a birth certificate under that person's name. There was always some old lady there did, doing the job and manually, and uh, you walked out of there with a birth certificate. How about and that? You just got driver's license, whatever, anything else you wanted. Now, did you figure that out on your own, or was that part of the finishing school like at Danbury? Did you learn that from some mob guys, or, you know, where? <laughs> I think I learned it from Fat Harry. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to guess that's a mob guy. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, what's really ironic is that he used to work in a bakery at, at night, and that. Uh, I used to harass them all, every day, all day. I carry out this, that's happening day and night. And so he kept shrugging me off. And uh, 
Finally, one day I walked in and he said, come here. And I said, you going to talk to me today, Harry? And he said, you little son of a bitch. He said, I thought you were a plant trying to get information. <laughs> he said, but we checked you out. Wow. Said, You're okay, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Hell, the, wow. the mob could have had you whacked in prison if they didn't like you, right? Yeah, but not in Danbury. That though. was that was like country club stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. Hey, well, you're out. You make five months later. You're meeting with Carlos. When did the when did your first shipment of cocaine start? Probably like two weeks after I went down there and came back. So that first trip, how long were you there? You remember? Where in Columbia? Yes. Uh, I just went went and came quickly. I mean, probably two or three days. That was it. Did they? Did you stay with Carlos, or they put you in a hotel? I stayed at uh, Pablo's ranch, but I in the beginning I stayed at the Intercontinental, which is right up the street from Pablo's ranch in uh, in Medellin, and. Uh, I, you know, it was a nice area, and and all that craziness hadn't started yet, and you know, it was not, it was like being on vacation. So you felt relatively safe then going down there. I mean, I felt safe anyway because I'd been up in the mountains of Mexico in the beginning, and I couldn't even speak Spanish. <laughs> and all these crazy bandits or whatever, and like I. Mean, in the beginning, I was scared then, but I mean, I could either get over being scared, or you better get the hell out of there. Right, right. Did so at Fa- Pablo's Ranch? Did you go to Finca Napoli's? Yeah, the place where he had the big zoo and all the craziness. Right. Hmm. What What was that like? It was. Looked like a place that a really ostentatious rich guy owned. <laughs> mm-hmm. Didn't know what to do with his money. A maniac. And then you did you meet Pablo that first trip? Yeah. I, we talked a lot and he a lot of people don't know this, but his mother was a school teacher. And he used to steal hubcaps. For extra money to feed his, his sister and his brothers. And he was an, an indigenous to, to Colombia. Right. And there's two classes of people in Colombia the ruling class, Spaniards and the Indians. And we basically did to the Indians down there what we did to them here as well. Yeah. Yeah. And but he, he he was never really accepted. He, he even bought a, a seat in the Senate, yep. and he wasn't accepted. Told him one time, I said, "You got all the money in the world. The more these people will ever have to look down on you." I said, "Get the hell out of here!" And a funny thing, he looked at me straight in the eyes. Almost tears, and he said, I will die here. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know what to say. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, so the the so after that trip, you come back. Um, how soon before? Uh, well, you started transporting the cocaine. What was your What was your first load of cocaine? Where did you pick it up from? Where did you go with it? Well, it was a small amount, a hundred kilos. Which really wasn't, but I, no, not initially. A hundred kilos was a lot. You know, I I have one rule in life, and not to lie. I don't like lying, and I I can't take lies. But I lied to Pablo that day, and if I had a market, and I I said yes, and and so I took it to Richard Burrell was you know in the pot business the barber yeah. mm-hmm. and he tested it and looked at it just like in the movie and added pure it's pure it's pure and I said can you sell it? He said I don't know he said I'm gonna try I said you better so I waited at the house and he came back in about three hours and he was half crazy. He said, more, I gotta have more, I gotta have more. And yeah, I said, I'll get it. So how much did he sell in that first three and a half hours you're saying? Did, did he, was he able to get rid of the, how much did he get? Did he get the whole hundred? Yeah. I mean, you saw it, you know a lot of people in, the, in Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, rich, wealthy people and the actors and all that, and, and they they would buy a whole kilo for sixty thousand in a minute. Wow, wow, unbelievable! So up until that time, before the cocaine, what's the most amount of money you saw in one place at one time? Probably five million. And then when you started doing these big loads, five million was like. Chump change, wasn't it? It's like a nickel. Jeez. You know, I mean, and money becomes a pain in the ass. I mean, it does. Logistically, right? Because of the weight, the size, the bulk? Counting it, watching it. <laughs> Especially counting it. Did you guys have uh, money counters back then? I was a money counter in, in a, <laughs> a couple couple of good-looking broads. Plug you in the wall. Here we go. But it's ironic. One day, I was at my beach house in uh, Cape Cod, and it was like, I don't know, $30 million there. And uh, (laughs) the guys had taken had left in the morning. They took my car, and they didn't come back. And I ran out of cigarettes. There's a little country store at the corner, like 20 minutes away. I could have walked and come back. And I said, I can't leave this house. And I don't even have a goddamn pack of cigarettes. I can't get a pack of cigarettes. I've got millions of dollars. And I said, what the fuck is happening here? <laughs> Who's in charge? Yeah. Oh my, was, so you got, I mean, but that's the other thing. How do you... Were you concerned at that point? Is that with thirty million in there like that, word's got to get out. I mean, as your business starts growing, 
And like you say, the greed starts taking over. This is a big money business. And with big money comes big risks and it comes with a lot more dangerous players, right? In the beginning, there really weren't any dangerous players. But as you say, as it grows and more people know, you know, and you become a victim. You know, somebody could set you up in yeah. a minute, rip you off, kid, and you always have to be aware of all that. You know, and it's like a paranoia that goes with it. And, you know, who's really in charge? Mm-hmm. The money? Are you going to be a victim? Are you going to be? And, I mean, how much money do you need anyway? That's the question, isn't that, it? In the beginning, I just wanted a million dollars. Then it was, people probably all liked us, but I used to get stoned and cocaine and good cognac and sit out of the fireplace and throw stacks of money in there. That should be criminal right there. And my, my boyhood friend was over there one day, Teddy, and he was watching me. He said, you son of a bitch. He said, I hate you. I said, what are you talking about, Teddy? Look at you burning money. He said, you're insane. <laughs> hey, reminded, that reminded me of something. You started getting into the business. When's the, when, when was your first hit of cocaine? What did it do to you? It makes you feel real good. Yeah, it's like, you got a boost burst of energy, like, incredible. And the thing about it is that you can stay up for days on it if you want to keep doing it. And the fact that you can stay up for days and you can't get drunk, you can drink all you want. And I like to drink. And and if you had cocaine, the ladies love cocaine. <laughs> Eric Clapton wrote a song about it. Yeah. Hey, well, Steve, because I, I, you've got some really good information too on Norman Cakes. You know, as Carlos and those guys were, because that was part of what you and I were talking about. So why don't we dive into Norman Kay a little bit? Because I know Carlos started scouting out places in '77, and then we started getting into it. So why don't you grab something on that and see what George remembers? Right. So. So George, he, Carlos wanted you, if you know, from watching your movie Blow, uh, Carlos wanted to know who your connect was in L.A. Right through Richard, right. And is that when things started to separate between you and Carlos? That's when it all went. Started to go to hell, mm-hmm. and I that what really started is I didn't want the island. You know, it was like, I said, when you keep moving and changing locations, you got a better chance. Mm-hmm. I said, you want to set up an island in the Bahamas, for Christ's sake, and create a drug station out of it. I said, how long do you think that's going to last? And but he, that's when he decided to get Richard, corrupt him, take him away from me. and. Go ahead with the island and push me aside. 
So he's, he's cutting out the middleman, looking at you as the middleman, right? That's right. Did, uh, to your knowledge, did, well, that sounds like an interrogation when I say that, doesn't it? Uh, no, no. <laughs> did, so his plan to buy Norman's key and, and create this transshipment point, was that authorized and condoned by Pablo Escobar and the other members, the Ochoa brothers, Rodriguez gotcha? It wasn't like an organization run like that at that time. And Carlos, when he was <laughs> out in the Bahamas, and he met a guy called Robert Besco. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have no idea who he is. I've heard of him. But he ripped off Wall Street. Yep. Okay. And I often think that he had a black book on Nixon or whatever because he floated around the Caribbean on a yacht and having ripped off Wall Street millions and nobody ever bothered him or harassed him or arrested him or Wow. And what happened is Besco had befriended uh Castro. Mm-hmm. His brother and Besco bought an island too called Emerald K, not far from Norman's K. And he and Carlos locked on to each other. And that's how Carlos, you know, met Raul Castro and this and that and 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 the, who owned the island and how to buy it and everything else. And you know, I was just pushed aside and that was it. Did you ever meet Raul Castro? Yeah, one time. Where was that? Over in Cuba. Wow. What were you What were you doing in Cuba, George? <laughs> <laughs> I used to sell Cuban airspace. Ah. Mm -hmm. So, who did you negotiate with? Was that Raul? Did you have to negotiate with him, or through intermediaries to to get it cleared for airspace? I negotiated with him, but he didn't. Since I was a gringo, like, you know, I didn't get to be with the others. I, they put me in a beach house down here at the beach somewhere. <laughs> kind of kept you at arm's length? Yeah. How did you, what was the going rate for negotiating airspace? And that kind of implies, too, is that if you were going to fly a load, you had to let them know I'm flying through because you didn't want what remained of the Cuban Air Force shooting your ass down, right? Right. It calls signals or whatever. And it was easy to go negotiate, and especially that Besco had introduced us and what have you. And it, it all went, it was too easy and, too, and it all became too difficult. And, you know, in the end, Carlos wanted refuge from, from the United States. And, and they refused to take him in, in Cuba. What was the going rate? Did they charge you per trip? Did they charge you based on the size of the load? How did you pay? Per plane, per plane load. And we didn't tell them how much or whatever. Okay. Just, yeah, do, you you remember, do you remember what the rate was per load? I don't know. It was probably a million dollars. Wow. Wow. How did you 
Uh, how did you deliver it to them? How did you deliver the cash? Was it done, you know, was it flown directly into Cuba or did somebody come pick it up? It's gave it to Vesco. Hmm. He took it over Okay. There. Yeah, basically, the whole place was crawling with American mob guys anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's true. You know, they started the mm -hmm. casinos down there, you know, Little Havana. You know, it was a big place for quite a while. Right, and they didn't. They they bought Castro off and Maro and everybody else, and like, yeah. And I, I what started there with Raul and I, I said, I said, all this Marxist bullshit. I said, you proclaim. I said, you're nothing but a fucking capitalist pig. I said, for Christ's sake, Look making a billion dollars a load. Yeah, yeah. When when did things? officially go south with Carlos for you? What was the event that finally said, okay, we're done? That's that people started to talk. You know, parties and whatever, like Carlos, Carlos fuck George, and this and that, and whatever, and da-da-da-da-da. And so, I decided enough was enough, and Decided to become a tough guy, a bad guy for about a couple of days. And like, I talked to Fat Harry. <laughs> Remember yeah. Fat Harry? Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of Whitey Bulger and all those guys that went to Hill Gang, which I found out later. And, uh, and he said, Yeah, I'll get you people to come go and do that. And I said, I want to go over there and I want to kill him. And he I said, he said, okay. He said, you got enough money? I said, fine, let's do it. And I went over there. As you know, I walked up to the, the volcano house, which is his top of the island. And we headed out. And I didn't want to shoot him. I just wanted to look at him. In fact, to be honest with you, I shot very few people in my life. <laughs> More than five or less than five? <laughs> Let's go less. <laughs> <laughs> because it's true. Okay. Remember what you said about lying, George, because it's true or because that's the answer you want to give us? <laughs> right. <laughs> Hey, well, let, let's talk a little bit about that, too, because you kind of got warned off, right, by Humberto about um, taking out Carlos? Right. My, he was listening. My wife told me. On me. Ah, that's what we're trying to figure out. How did he find out? So Mirtha at that time told him? Yeah, and he, he called me in New York, and he was like, he's one of those guys who sweat, okay, and I, Claude, he's like, keep talking to me, he's sweating like a pig, and he's, you can't do this, you can't do this. He said, this is crazy, this is insane. He said, you're going to create a war, and we'll all be killed, all of us. He said, do you understand? And I said, yeah, I understand. He said, we'll give you anything you want. You can bring your own loads or whatever. He said, leave them alone. Did 
do you think he was being do you think it really would have started a war or do you think he was just trying to uh keep you from doing that because it was bad for his business it would have started a war it didn't take much to start a war with those guys no no it didn't you have the motorcycle with the guy on back you know with the uzi and you know pop a few rounds off right right i didn't want to be one of those guys when i heard a motorcycle <laughs> no, which was funny when I was down in, uh, and Steve, this may have been the same for you when you were in Medellin, when I was down in Bogota, I was working on Plan Columbia, they had passed a law that says if you're on a motorcycle, the helmets, I think, had to have the license plate number of the motorcycle on them. Still yeah. Did. And the, you had to wear a vest, you know, so that, Still yeah. Hey, well, let's ask, let's talk about that real quick, because as you were getting sideways, you know, a little bit with Humberto, but obviously with Carlos, you had a meeting one time with Carla or with Humberto uh, down in um, uh, Kendall, south of Miami, where your car blew up. Right. I uh, I parked in a in a parking lot of the hotel and uh, it was just regular parking. The space was fine, and I came out. I was blocked in from both ends. And I had, I hadn't closed the door on the car yet. Something told me, get the hell out. I rolled out. And the car went up. Up in a thousand pieces. Who, who put uh, the hit out on you? Humberto? Carlos? Who do you think? It was probably Carlos. How did he? Carlos was had gone crazy by then. How did he know you were meeting with Humberto? It's a small world. You think you had somebody on the inside of Humberto's organization uh, pipelining information back to Carlos? More or less, probably. Mm-mm-mm. How did you... Now, was that was that your car? Was it a rented car, stolen one? How did you not get tied into that bombing? It was him. It was my car. You know, there was so much insanity happening then in in South Florida that they weren't going to chase a guy's car had been blown up or whatever. I mean, people would get shot in the street everywhere. You know? Yeah, other things keeping them busy. Well, speaking of getting busy, let's get into the 1980s because this stuff is really heating up. I mean, um, before we get out of that, though, you kind of in the book and in the movie and in the interviews I've seen, we talk about the Carlos thing. Did you ever really let the Carlos thing, you know, out of your head or did it keep was it there, you know, getting into the 1980s as this stuff was going? Did you ever really let go of that or did that was that something that stayed with you? It stayed with me until, in fact, it still stays with me. Because, to be honest with you, I would let Carlos out now if I had the key. When's the last time you spoke to Carlos? A lot. So so long ago, I can't even recall. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but... Did you know... His lawyer didn't do any favors. Believe me. And Did you know that he's out of prison now? Who's that? Carlos. I heard it. 
He's yep. back in Germany. He's uh, yep. Good God. <laughs> hey, here's a, here's a what if? What if George Jung and Carlos Later were flying through an at, through an international airport and you met? Would you have a beer with the guy? And if you did, what would that conversation go like? It would be about when we first met in the beginning, I was best man at his wedding, and the kid that I liked. Mm -hmm. Not what he became. Right. Because, you, you know, you can't change the past. You know, you see it for what it's worth and take the good from the bad. True. That's, that's a good attitude, George. That's a forgiving attitude. Does that sound like George? Does that sound like George Young? The older you get, the more you forgive. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> too, too, too much baggage to carry. Well, look, in the '80s, things were really starting to heat up. More planes, more kilos. One thing that caught my eye, because Steve and I both live just basically five minutes from each other. We're here in Northern Virginia, but you talked about flying a load into Norfolk Airport one time in Virginia because nobody was watching that, and you taxi down to the end of the runway dumped your cargo, your load, and then pulled in for customs. How did you know? I, I mean, I knew that they talked, maybe it was uh, one of the pilots told you about the gap, you know, in coverage, but how did you know there was a gap in uh, uh, at the airport that would allow you to go down to the inn and offload before you came back up to customs? Well, it's ironic because a lot of strange twists of fate happened to me throughout my life. And I was looking for another plane. I looked in Trader Plane, which those who don't know is a, an airplane ma magazine that, you know, selling aircraft. And uh, and it said the guy had, uh, I wanted DC-3s, but he had British form of DC-3 called Doves at Young Crown Airlines in Norfolk. And uh, I called, and his wife said, Jim's at work. She said, I'll pick you up at the airport. Let me know. Da, da, da. You can meet Jim, see the planes. And I walked in there, and, you know, pilots love to wear the boots and the cowboy hat and the whole thing. And, a little macho. Yeah. And he's sitting there with his feet on his desk. He said, what do you want with those doves? And I said, uh, well, I'm in the real estate business. I want to use them for taking clients around, showing properties. He said, that's not what you want them for. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what do I want them for? He said, you're a smuggler. You got it written all over you, boy. <laughs> and so next thing you knew, we were working together. And Crown Airlines was like, I don't know, 500 feet from the customs. We, we announced we were coming out of Columbia. Oh, yeah. Take. Yeah, and I land, taxi around, headed towards customs, open the doors, throw, it, throw the goddamn sea bags at the Crown Airlines into the hangar and keep on moving on. And clear custom. Wow. So you had to have somebody on the plane helping you throwing those bags out, right? Yeah. 
and and uh, obviously the door opened the appropriate way so that you could throw those bags out and then close the door back, right? That was a sliding door. Is the military? Oh yeah, basically mm. aircraft. Yeah. How many of those trips did you make into Norfolk like that? Probably like eight. Wow. And why did you stop using that as a system just to move on to something else before you got caught? Because, you know, greed stepped in and took my place one more time. Casey fell in love with some Colombian girl and ended up with her, left his wife and kids, and then he was in business for himself. <laughs> that that reminds me of when I was doing work with the government down there. They're like you say, the Colombian women. They're beautiful. A lot of beautiful women. I remember this conversation one day. We're looking at these women, and you know, I've been married going on thirty four years now. But she looks at me and she goes, "You know, many American come down here. Many American men have come down here single and left married." And I looked at her. I said, "Honey, I bet a lot of married men have come down here and left single." <laughs> <laughs> oh it was yeah. and they they were i mean they uh, not only were they professional dressed well but like you say just the way they carried themselves comported themselves um how much by by 1980 by those times into norfolk how many kilos do you think you at that point had brought into the u.s i don't know probably a thousand maybe mm-hmm. more and how much money did that translate into you for at that time by you know 1980 well, I had $68 million in Panama in the Bank of Nova Scotia. You know, a lot of the drug money was there. Mm-hmm. Ablos, mm-hmm. even CIA money was there. And, like, and then, then he, he went crazy stoning cocaine, and he confiscated all the banks and the money. That's Noriega, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then he ran to the church and called the Pope, and the Pope said, "You're on your own, boy." <laughs> did you ever know that? Did you ever deal with anybody from the CIA, as far as you knew, during that time? Well, two guys. Yeah, I mean, and they were very convincing. Oh, come on. You got to give us some details on this. This is getting juicy. <laughs> I, I can neither confirm nor deny, Senator. <laughs> In fact, one of the guys is gone now. I remember got last hostage being held in the orange jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. Terry, I think that was Terry Anderson. You mean out of Iran? Yeah, Bobby Lowndes. Yeah. Sad. Hmm. And I don't know what the hell he went back in the game for or anything. It's crazy. So so don't identify these guys. I, I need to know more about this. <laughs> what What is it they wanted you to do or not do? Well, a lot of drug money would go to, you know, secret wars. Mm-hmm insurrections everywhere and this and that and, you know they were instead of getting people high they were interested in and 
revolution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what that's what stoked their fire. Yeah, and there was a lot of those independent wars going on in Central and South America. Yeah, still, the are. whole Iran Contra thing. Did you ever run anything other than dope? Were you ever asked to run weapons or uh, other than cash? Were you asked? To, were, did you ever run loads other than drug related stuff? No, but I knew Barry Seal. Hmm. That was crazy. Did Barry ever work for you? No, but my uncle was from Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, Barry was from there, and uh, I met him through my uncle, and uh, never knowing that my uncle had a loss of his side to him, but he did. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know what? This is an unrelated question. But, uh, Why not? Just because you mentioned. Yeah, just because you mentioned Barry Seal, um, when he was killed, who do you think ordered the hit on him? Do you think it was the Ochoas or do you think it was Pablo? Because we've heard both. I think it was an agency with three letters. Oh, not the FBI, huh? When time to go, it's time to go. <laughs> so you're thinking mm. that that was a government-sanctioned hit? He's uh, probably never get out of wing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cover for you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the '80s because you went through getting arrested at your house. You know, the undercover operation by the Mass State Police. You fled again, but kind of, you know, what interested me was when you were down in Berenkia. You were talking your interpreter. Let's talk about the guy that took a leap off of the balcony of your hotel. Okay. Um, I'd gone up to the mountains, and the interpreter they gave me was trying to make a deal with me on his, with these other people on his own. And mm. you know, I went back to the hotel and I told them. When you say them, you're talking about Pablo's guys, right? Yeah, and didn't say anything, and. Uh, I saw that we could see the guy coming up the street, walking, and uh, he got in the room. They just opened one door, let him in, and walked him across the room to the, to the balcony, and he was gone. What, what was going through your head at that point? Were you thinking, am I next, or did you know that it was just that guy? You're always thinking you could be next, because... Things became so explosive down there, insane. I mean, like, I mean, it really went crazy, and like, you know, to the point of blowing up commercial airlines and this and that, and I mean, hundreds of people and nothing, and it was a madhouse. When so when you're meeting with these people down there, whether it's Pablo or his Sicarios or you know his lieutenants, whatever, did you hear them talk about the bombing of the Avianca flight or the attack on the Palace of Justice down there or blowing up the DOS building? But they really didn't have to talk about it because it was all over the news. But the, if, when you're talking to Pablo, he never it never came up in conversation. He said one time we we're gonna. 
going to blow up some planes. I said, what kind of planes? It's a commercial plane. And I was like, I got to get the hell out of here, man. <laughs> I'm just mm-hmm. a kid from Weymouth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's like us, just a couple farm boys, one from Kansas, one from West Virginia. But by that time, you know, you're down there. How many people, and this is going to be a very direct question, by that time, how many people did you see die in front of you from either the, uh, you know, like Pablo shooting a guy, this uh, interpreter taking a, a flying leap? By that time, how many times had you seen people die in front of you? I don't know, probably 10 times. Jeez. And any of those times, did you think your ticket was about to get punched? What's the closest you came to thinking, you know, I'm next? Well, you know, you, you have to be an irrepressible optimist to stay in play. <laughs> okay. I we never know when any of us are going to be next. You know, you could step off the curb and get killed. I mean, but. You can't play the game thinking you're going to be next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you because of such a paranoia and will make you crazier than you already are. And like, you can't be crazy and do all that. I mean, you can, you can't. And that that brings up a question here. Another question. Um, you mentioned the game. What for, so for the listeners that don't understand what we're talking about here? Can you explain what that game is? The game is called You Bet Your Life. Mm-hmm. And you finally begin to realize that you weren't doing it for the money. You were doing it for the high. Yes, sir. And you were addicted to it. And you guys knew a lot of smugglers, right? I mean, you talked to them all the time, whatever. Absolutely. And I'm sure they told you the same thing. They did. That rush is like, you know, it's like a gambler at a casino. The money's just a tool for him. And like, just play the game. Mm-hmm. Is it okay if it's $100 million in front of him? He could have walked away a long time ago. And, but he needs to play the game. So in that game, you even get that rush when that knock comes on the door, don't you? When law enforcement shows up. <laughs> As a Scottish man you know, said one time, it makes me crap me knickers. Yeah. yeah. Ah, and that's, like that. you know, and that's why I asked you that question, George, because most people don't understand any of that. You know, whether they, if you've been in the military, if you've been in a, in a, in a occupation, whether legal or illegal, where your life is at risk, you understand what you just said. Well, it's kind of like a, a private club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, as they say, God damn to push a man. Mm-hmm. You know, and everybody that hasn't been in that club, they look at us like we're all crazy. Maybe, Maybe we, we are, are. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so, so George, going along those lines, up until that time, had you ever had a gun against your head? No, but. I got shot one time. Where at? In Miami at the hotel. And I went to put my hands up like, stop it, man. They were arguing. And and so I was gotten shot me accidentally. And I went, 
I broke my clavicle and I was pretty lucky, I guess. So I was able to stay and play the game more. Jeez. Wow. So uh, who shot you? Was it one of the other guys, you mean, when he was pulling out his weapon? Thomas and I had an argument and continued the argument in front of these guys. And we were transferring the money and whatever. One of them freaked out and shot me. Itchy trigger fingers, right? Yeah. Hey, well, you know, let's keep going a little bit forward here, too, because um, after you got busted, uh, you know, you eventually end up uh, in uh, Plymouth. You know, and you walk away from Plymouth. Again, another kind of, uh, you know, minimum security thing. And now you're down in Fort Lauderdale, right? Right. How did you How did you come about getting arrested that time? Because I think that was what for four hundred keys. Right. Well, if we can recall what I told you about, Cliff, the Playboy in Beverly Hills, mm-hmm. the pilot. Well, I hadn't seen him for a long time, and unbeknownst to me. He was working for you guys now, you know, and so he came along when I met Tom and those guys in like a hotel, and we talked, and then they left us. We said we get back to each other, and da 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 da. And Cliff looked over at the at Tom, and he said, "Do you know who that guy is?" Tom said no, and he said, that's Boston George for Christ's sake. Then they went crazy. Wow. Every, everybody knew who Boston George was back then, didn't they? It didn't take long. <laughs> well, look, yeah. so what's interesting is that thing parlayed. I mean, you're in custody, and now not the DEA, but the FBI starts taking an interest in you because they want to capture Carlos, right? Carlos has gotten everybody's attention by that point, right? Right. You came up with a pretty grand plan to lure Carlos out into international waters. What was that? It was uh, put high-powered weapons on a yacht, okay, ground air missiles and whatever, and invite up for a nice cruise, cocktails, you know, girls in bikinis, and and then take a look at the the, the weapons. And what happened? It was all going fine, and then Carlos decided to get caught. And so that was over. Uh, courtesy of the DEA in Columbia, right, Steve? Right, and I was thinking this guy after me again, like, God damn it. <laughs> well, but you weren't quite done with Carlos yet, right? Because you were doing some time, and they came to you with an opportunity. And what was very interesting was, because part of your code was right, you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, testify against people, you wouldn't give up information about people. But this changed with Carlos. How did that go about changing with Carlos to where you actually ended up testifying against him? I was uh, <clears throat> in the lockup, and the guy said, "Take a look at this," and it was the Miami Herald, and and the Herald was a. Carlos had written a letter to George Bush 
for total immunity, offering to give everybody up. Mm-hmm. And I, so I said, well, God damn it. You're not going to one-up me this time, brother. I mean, killed me doing that, believe it or not. But how did you go about, because you actually had to contact Pablo, right? I mean, you, you wanted to get permission to testify against Carlos, right? Right. I had my, my wife handle all that. And the word came back to go ahead and do it. Had Carlos become a big liability for uh, the cartel and for Pablo at that point, too? I think when you're in a situation like that, he was at that time, he was a big liability. Yeah, he had become somewhat of a loose cannon, hadn't he? Crazy. Yeah. Do you, do you think, so going back to where Carlos was captured in Colombia, uh, you know, there's rumors about how that happened. Do you think Pablo gave him up? You know, I don't know if we'll ever know that one. Mm, okay. What does he think? Who, Carlos? I'm yeah. pretty sure he probably thinks it's Pablo. <laughs> I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't spoken to him, but I would think so. Christ, it could have been Barbara Walters, for Christ's sake. <laughs> could be Walter Cronkite. Yeah, and the, the jungle interview. Oh. Hey, well, look, so you ended up testifying because I've read some of that stuff. I mean, you were on there for a long time, 567 pages or 64 pages of trial transcript. You were on the stand for a long time. What was that? I mean, you had done a lot of things, but I don't think you'd ever testified in federal court before, right? That was the first. What was that like? Well, that was another game, too, wasn't it? It was you against the defense attorneys, you with the prosecutors. Well, <clears throat> Quignon was was as powerful as, he, as smart as he thought. And I began to talk about the asylum. We were going to take over Belize, this country. Mm-hmm. And he said, you telling me that only two you and Carlos were going to take over Belize? And running an airfield down there and control everything. And I said, I said, the only reason you're here in America right now is because two guys over in your country decided to take it over. And I said, that's why you're here, because you don't, you know, I said, you know, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, those names familiar to you. They got pissed off. <laughs> I rather imagine you would not have been easy to cross-examine on the stand because just like with the judge, you know, at your sentencing, you know, uh, you probably had uh, to get into it with them. Did you have some good give and take? Yeah. Yeah, after a while, it's like, you know, when you first walk in the courtroom and everything, you're intimidated somewhat, whatever, Mm -hmm. then it becomes like, you know, you're comfortable. Yeah. And you play the game. Play the game. Well, hey, let's let's kind of we're we're on the downside of this now. So now you finally do your time. In the words of Martin Luther King, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, George is free at last. You are out, but you're not really out, right? 
No, I hadn't crossed over to freedom. Not yet. So that was 1989. So, but so while you're out, how long did it take before you got back in the game again? I really didn't get back in the game. I mean, my old friend from Mexico came up and uh, he was moving pot, and I said, "I don't, I don't care about any of that anymore, Ramon." And uh, he, he said, well, "You must have some." People you could help me turn me on to, whatever. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And uh, I said, whatever you do when you're here in Cape Cod, I said, you know, you're out of place and it doesn't look like you're tourists. Mm-hmm. I said, don't send any money, Western Union, don't make any international calls and just make believe you are tourists. And of course, what do you think they did? Made call. <laughs> they sent money, Western Union. Left a paper trail, didn't they? And the cops have been watching that house. And I, I mean, I didn't have it on the pot or anything. I was, I was just over there having a drink. And, uh, and they said, uh, we saw you walk in that house. We went out of pants. So we couldn't <laughs> fucking believe it. Now, there's a lot of conflicting stories about your arrest in '94 because some it was cocaine or it was weed. What you're saying was you you were charged with conspiracy to distribute 796 kilos of weed. Is that right? Right. But see, I was under the old law now, and uh, I was. At, a three-time offender, mm-hmm. career criminal. Three strikes. Yeah, it was over. I mean, so how the hell did you end up getting yourself? Because remember when we did the pre-interview and I told you I was from Kansas, you go, what the hell happens in Kansas? But the bust went down at Topeka, Kansas, didn't it? Right. <laughs> how did they get you to Topeka, Kansas? <laughs> and what were you doing in Kansas? Hey, wait a minute. Hang on now. <laughs> That's another story. Okay. Does it involve a girl? Don't they always? <laughs> so, how did you get lured to Topeka, Kansas? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> where did it? Where did the where did the uh, bus take place at? And it was, a, it was a little house somewhere out in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, and then they came. And what was going through your mind when that door opened like that, when they started coming in? What, what, what went through your head? Well, this one cop grabbed me and he said, is this going to be another book, asshole? And I said, no, asshole, it's going to be a movie and you're going to be in it, asshole. <laughs> anyway, crazy. It's nice to see you guys had mutual respect for each other. <laughs> hey, well, one of the questions I got is you, you got charged and you were convicted. And again, there's so much conflicting information out there. So I wanted to set the record straight with you. Did you get 66 years for conspiracy? Yes. How did you get it down to 20? 
I, I appealed it, and what happened was a case where a guy won a friend and that when the prosecutor is attacking you, you can't bring up other crimes and this and that to the jury. And, you know, he has to stick to it, the main case itself. And this guy, Apprendi, won it. And I actually got a letter saying I won my case. But unfortunately, it was not retroactive. And I was serving an illegal sentence. Hmm. <laughs> the illegal oh. sentence. So uh, what, what, did it, what was the news like when you got that, hey, it's no longer 66 years, it's 20, you know? Oh, well, it's floating all along that I was going to escape. Ah, did this involve another pilot? Yes. I thought by now, George, <laughs> you learned you can't trust fucking pilots. Sometimes it's the only game in town. <laughs> so did you actually hatch a plan? Was it, was it just in, the, in your head, or did you actually have uh, planning done to escape? No, we had plans, and uh, unfortunately, the guy worked for one of the aircraft companies out of Kansas, okay, and Cessna, and uh, he's very new aircraft to the dealers. And somehow there was water in the fuel line. He crashed in a field in Kansas to get mm. Mm. after flying in Vietnam and every other goddamn place, drug flights. Water in the fuel line. Yeah. Jeez. Jeez. Well, let's, let's wrap up with your time in uh, Otisville. Uh, because we have just a couple philosophical questions for you, and then uh, we'll be done here. So, you got twenty years when you, even though it was sixty-six when you went in, twenty later. How did you prepare yourself to do that kind of time? Well, there again, I was working to get towards the camp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I was medium class at the facility, and you had to work your way down with points to get to a camp. And so, you know, the counselor who changed the points and everything, and Mr. Spencer was sending to the camp. Somehow he he hit the lottery one trips to Miami and this and that. <laughs> and eventually, I was ready to go to the camp. And. Hmm. I was betrayed by a woman, and I told her this, and I, because she told somebody else. You told her about the escape attempt? Yeah, and next thing I knew, they, they took me in handcuffs, and the, the captain, he said, that doesn't make any sense, he said. He said, why would you want to escape? He said, you were going to a camp in two days. He said, it's ridiculous. He said, I don't believe it. And he said, it's bullshit. He said, somebody was out to get you. Wow. Was it, now, was it a prison employee, the woman, or was it somebody from the outside? That was a guy. 
No, I meant the woman who uh, you told that betrayed you. Was she uh, was she a prison employee or was she from the outside? Yeah. Okay. Well, look, kind of coming in now for the final phase here. This kind of gets into some of the philosophy stuff, some questions that didn't quite fit into the timeline. Um, this kind of an unusual one. And what's the funniest thing that ever happened to you during this whole drug stuff that just, you know, was there was there like one thing that just happened stands out in your mind says this is the funniest shit I've ever seen or funniest thing that ever happened to me? Wow. One time we were up in the mountains with tuna and uh and it was a couple of gunshots went off and uh tuna's eyes were as big as fucking hubcaps on a Cadillac and and I said, I said, you should just go down the hill, Tuna. I said, watch the motorhome. You'll be more effective down there. I was like, oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but, I mean, there was, most of it wasn't really funny. It was tense. Yeah. <laughs> intense. And, uh, yeah, it was all about Money, women, cocaine, and the craziness that went with it. Did you ever bump into Grisel de Blanco? Many times over. And were you working together with her or just she knew parties? She knew my wife. And I told her, I said, you better never follow me home, you bitch. <laughs> oh, there's a reason they call her the Black Widow. Yeah. Now, did you ever do any business with her or just know her just from contacts? That's what I'm saying. I wouldn't piss on her if she was on fire. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you know what happened to her, right? Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Um, kind of here's 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 one for you, too. Too many people want to ask, well, would you change it if you did it? You've, you've already answered that question. You said, no, I would live my life the same way I did it. Well, let me ask you a little bit differently. What would you change about the way you lived your life? Because you got betrayed by a lot of people you thought you could trust. Pilots a lot, you know, the woman. What would you change if you were George Young going back now to 1970? What would you change about the way you operated differently than what you had done previously? Well, in the beginning, it was perfect because hardly anybody knew who I was or where I lived or anything. And that's the part of winning the whole game. As the longer you play, the more people know who you are. And what happened is I got crossed up between becoming a thrill junkie playing and uh and took away from the the whole business as aspect of it the concept of like security and safety and mm -hmm. like make your money nobody knows who you are it's a shitload of money and get in and get out i had a pilot one day call me and I, he said i quit i said why and he said he said, because I got what I want. You helped me get it, George. And I said, it's a lot more money than I ever was seen in my life. And he said, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm going to go live the dream. And I, he said, you know the difference between you and I? And I said, what, Barry? He said, uh, he said, 
this is a game to you, he said. For me, it was a business and a reason to work there and do it. And he said, that's why he said, it's going to get you in the end. Hey, real quickly, too, because your hist- you guys have a shared history, you and Steve do, because you were working with Pablo and Steve and Javier were the guys that took down Pablo. In fact, in our pre-call, we talked about that famous picture of Steve uh, holding up Pablo after he'd been shot. In 93, when he was shot and killed during the raids down there, the search block, how did you get the news and what did you think about it when you heard that Pablo had been killed? I came to a point where I knew he was going to get killed. And it was sad. It was sad to me. I mean, because I knew his wife. She, she was only 16 when he married her, and she had nothing to do with any of it, nothing. And she's been banned from Columbia, the United States. Why the hell is she being punished? I mean, I, and, you know, he just went crazy, that's all. I don't know, he, he was a thrill junkie. He was like, a paranoia junkie about being insecure about his being an indigenous Indian to the goddamn land instead of a Spaniard, okay? Mm-hmm. And he's never going to be able to change that. And I think he knew all along the end was going to come. Uh, do you think he knew there's probably only one way out, and that was death? Right. Well, yeah. Speaking of death, I got a question for you, George. You you have probably said how much of your product do you think you've put up your nose over the years? Like what half a million dollars? Easily. Easily. Well, how the hell are you and Keith Richards still alive with all the shit you've done? <laughs> We're in bomb. <laughs> uh, you've been pickled, I didn't know right? if, I didn't know if yeah. you and Keith Richards got together and shared secrets about, you know, how you stay alive, you know? <laughs> We used to. <laughs> Did you ever meet him? Yeah, many times. And Mick? Yeah. Mick was oh. too much of a... Well, there's a word called asshole, all right? Let's <laughs> just leave it at that, okay? But Keith was pretty uh, chill? He was, he was a down-to-earth guy. No, Mick got a little bit too carried away with himself. Hey, mm. would you mind just ticking off five or six to ten names? Who were some of the f- famous people you met? We've talked about Raul and uh, Fidel Castro. I know you talked about Liz Taylor and Richard Burton. Uh, we've talked about the Stones. Who are some of the other people through your escapades you came across that are now famous? Well, I loved Richard Pryor. I mean, he was... I cried when he died, and he was wonderful, a mm. genius. And fortunately, he liked cocaine too. <laughs> Freebasing it yeah. is what got him in hurt. Yeah, right. What's the one? What about? What do you think is going to help a black man with his hair on fire running down the street, Beverly Hills? Yeah, he uh, did a whole piece on that. I thought that was hilarious. I mean, he 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 even made fun of himself with that. You know, right? I mean. Cocaine was even Johnny Carson joked about it. Everybody joked about it. You know, and they made movies about it. All of a sudden, it was like, you know, 
the thing. And you know what the thing is. <laughs> Drop a yeah. couple more names on us before we go here. Who are some of the other famous uh, folk you've come across? Uh, right. <laughs> uh, John Belushi, Carol King. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, and I never met Bob Dylan, but. When they were making, the, after they made the movie, I called the director because the counselor told me Ted wants to talk to you. Da, 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 da. And uh, I called and I said, What's going on? He said, you won't, you won't guess who's standing right here, right here in front of me. You won't believe it. And I said, Well, hold up. He said, Put him on. And he said, Okay. And he said, yeah, man, it's Bob Dylan. He said, I just saw your movie. And I said, you know what, Bob? I'm waiting my whole life to meet this guy, even to talk to him for three minutes, okay? And I, I said, because listening to all your songs when I was young made me an outlaw. And he said, God damn, I hope that don't get out. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's a good story. Hey, I got a question for you. Are you working on any projects now? What can we tell people about? Well, unfortunately, the liquor caught up in my liver, and I'm working on saving that. And, uh, you know, it's really ironic after all I've been through to be. Kicked in the ass by Johnny Walker, right? A legal product. <laughs> yeah. But I'm got another book I'm doing and it's called Outlaws. And you guys will get one. All right. Looking forward to that. Okay. And I'll just continue doing the talk shows, whatever, and I know at one time there was a documentary or five-part series that was going to come out, and you talked about it, Famous Without a Fortune. Is that on hold, or is that still moving forward? That's from, uh, produced by G2C Productions. I worked on it five years with them. Uh, go all over the country and filmed everywhere. Da, 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 da. They're waiting to sell it to one of the networks now. I wish they'd hurry up. Don't we know yeah. that, Steve? <laughs> oh, yeah. Hollywood's a little slow. I thought the government was slow, but I think Hollywood beats them. You better believe that. <laughs> well, hey, final thoughts here. Steve, final question, and, and then I've got a question, and then I want a final thought from George. So anything else you want to close with, Steve? Just, uh, I did read where uh, you negotiated a price with Pablo to transport cocaine, and I just want to hear it from your mouth. What were the terms of that first deal? Is that I would charge ten ten thousand dollars per load per kilo per load, mm -hmm. and that was a lot of money then. I, it's outrageous, right? And whatever I could sell too, which I didn't know if I could sell any, but the ten thousand per load was guaranteed. Kilo mm -hmm. was guaranteed. And Did you get a? Did you get a percentage of the load also? Well, once I found out Richard could sell it and everything, we 
we started making lots of money. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's pretty high compared to today's rates. But also, uh, you'd mentioned that it costs about $5,000 a kilo. You know, and uh, the last I've heard, it's being produced down in Columbia for about $1,000 a kilo now. And the transportation rates are three to 5000 per key. That's probably 50% Ajax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't think the burn numbers are going to go up on the hot plate, huh? <laughs> well, George, you've been such a great champ. And we love diving deep on this to find out about the game. Um, my final question to you is, you know, all of our time, everybody's time on earth comes to an end at some point. Mine will, Steve's will, yours will. When somebody's standing up at your funeral and they're talking about you, what do you want them to say about you? Probably what they're not going to say, what they are going to say, but, and, uh, you know, what it comes down to is that after 70 plus years on the planet, the life is full of madness, sadness, and gladness. Probably have more gladness and sadness and let the goddamn madness take care of itself. I think I read that in a book somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, look. This has been one of the best interviews I've ever been on because, you know, we all come from different sides of the law. We came from different things. But at some point, like you say, you reach a point in your life where you can sit down and talk about it and recognize it for what it is. So we just want to tell you we really appreciate you sharing the stories, sharing the time. Because for us, like you, it was all about the game. We, we You talk about the thrills, the danger and stuff. We all lived it just from different perspectives. And it was great to get your perspective. So we just want to truly tell you we appreciate you spending time with us sharing your story with us. You know, we, we wish you very well on all your projects and stuff. And whatever you do, George, don't take that boat south into Mexico. <laughs> you got it. Uh, it's been yeah. great to meet you, George. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank from, you, guys. From an old cop to uh, an old trafficker. It's and, been an experience. Thank you. And tell Carlos, I hope there's a big sailfish out there waiting for him. Yeah. So, Steve, this is kind of a bittersweet episode because, um, I, I mean, we're hearing the guy talk and then, uh, you know, he, like I said, he passed away May 5th, you know, and it's we don't want to lionize him because he wasn't like a hero of society. He was to some people. Oh, he has you know? a huge following. George. Oh, he man. And he, but George did some stuff. And he looked. But the thing is, he did his time. He did a lot of time for what he did. But, you know, but. One of the things you've got to be careful of, you can't be dismissive, especially if you're in law enforcement. You can't say, well, he's a crook. He's this. You know, other people say, well, he violated the law. Listen to the guy's history. We have to learn from stuff like this. I mean, I was a huge student of learning from people and watching. What did you do? My, one of my favorite questions when I would find somebody, end up arresting them for something, I'd say, how'd you get away with it? What went into your thinking? Like, for example, burglars, burglary. One guy broke into like 27 houses. We had a hell of a time catching him. And when we did, my question was, how did you get away with it? What did you do? And he walked me through the way he cased the neighborhood, what he was looking for, what was important to him, how we went about to the door. Uh, you know, and his MO was basically he'd case the neighbor, he'd look around, he'd ring the doorbell if nobody answered, then he'd walk around to the back door, kick in the back door. Why? Because nobody it would it'd be tougher to see the back door than the front door. So but anyway, but I mean it just it, it was amazing to listen to George's right. stories and like we said. 
you know, and here he is, here's George admitting to everybody that he is, when I said, you know, he says, be honest with you, I've shot very few people in my life, you know, more than five or less than five. Well, less than five. I, I, I challenge you to go find an interview where George has said that to anybody or that else. that he actually worked with the CIA down in Panama. That, that was the biggest shocker for me. Uh, I, I just, <laughs> that yeah. would knock me out of my chair. I think I was, uh, believe it or not, I was speechless uh, when he came up with that one just because it was so incredulous. But, you know, to just go along with what you, you were just saying there, Morgan, about, uh, you know, yeah, we know these guys are criminals, but it's just like some of the people that we have to put on the witness stand that were participants in crimes, whether drug dealers, uh, you know, associates involved in murders, whatever it might be. We know it's, it's hard to find a priest or, you know, an upstanding citizen who pays their taxes and has successful business and has the cookie cutter family to come on the, on the witness stand and be able to tell you all about the crime. You have to deal with these people. But the benefit of that is we, as law enforcement, learn how they operate on the inside. And, and why would he want to bring them to you? So now you know what we know. You can hear how they were able to commit their crimes. Not that we're trying to make you investigators, but if you weren't... Or if, criminals. We don't want to make you criminals If you either. weren't interested, you wouldn't be listening to our show, would you? That's right. Again, so, you know, look, great stuff. And, you know, and uh, we we tip our hat to George because he came on. He was very open about stuff and he, he predicted his own death. You know, he said, this is what it'll be. I mean, for him to say, when I asked him, I said, how much of your product has gone up your nose? Easily a half a million dollars worth. But that's not what killed him. He said it was yeah. the drinking. Yeah. You so, know? you know what, George Jung, God rest your soul. Rest in peace, brother. Rest in peace, brother. And maybe, like he said, you know, maybe Carlos will get that big fishing boat. Um, it would have been really interesting to get Carlos and George together. <laughs> well, there might have been a murder. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. We're working on some things. But anyway, hey, guys, we just want to thank you again for all your reviews, all the great things you're saying about us. Remember, you can find us on Twitter, Game of Crimes, Facebook, Game of Crimes. Instagram, Game of Crimes Podcast. Our website is GameofCrimesPodcast.com. Go onto our contact page. Leave us a message. Uh, we'll have, like I said, by episode three, we will have a special email for you guys to use to send us articles or things. And if we read it on the air, we'll give you a shout out, a.k.a. Jimmy Wisman uh, style. Steve will butcher it because, you know, he's from <laughs> Crab Legs, West Virginia, and he has a hard time reading. So, but just go on, give us a rating. And, and by the way, Steve, we've got... Um, this next, this next episode, l l let me just play a quick clip and let people hear. I'm trying to meet other people and talk, and then all of a sudden I hear the music change to Gloria Estefan's, like, Congo line uh, yeah. kind of music. Miami Sound Machine, turned the beat around. Yes, totally. And so there's Kevin leading the Congo line with all of these cheerleaders. One's, you know, up here, when he's swinging them around, they're doing this whole thing, and I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm like, okay, I think it's time to go. Probably not going to accomplish a lot more here tonight. So I get him into our Jeep. I strap him in. I'm driving home. And he's totally quiet. And it's February, so I've got the heat blasting in the Jeep, right? And he's hammered. We pull into our undercover apartment parking lot. I go around. I open up the door. He turns like the exorcist and just projectile vomit in my head, like on my clothes, in my part of my face. And my and the worst part was my hair. I had spent so much time on my hair that so and it's just everywhere. And then I had to fireman drag him into the apartment. I love the Canadians, man. They are so polite. <laughs> uh, like I say in there, you, you can you can give them all sorts of grief, and they will apologize to us for me 
giving her grief, you know? So Pam was just, I mean, this, this is going to be a, her story about what she did with the biker gang and stuff. Uh, uh, you guys got to hear that her one of her final operations. She's fantastic. Uh, Could have gone. I mean, don't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to dramatic. I mean, it could have gone wrong. Had it gone wrong, Pam, uh, she was with some people who had no compunction about shooting anybody that was right, in the car. Right, and the them. guy in the car had a weapon. Yeah. Had a weapon. Bad. These are, and the guy is still on the run too. We talked about it in that episode. So, Hey guys, remember, uh, give us five stars. We don't know why it matters, but it does. It matters to Apple. So it matters to us. It allows us to keep bringing you stuff. Keep sending us your comments. we got bonus content ready to come out. We're trying to determine when. Let us know if you want to hear it and what other things you might like to hear. And guess what? Until next week, are you guys ready to be players in the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? I think you Looking are. Looking forward to next week. Join us then. 